Hey there, Michael Kentris here, and welcome to the Neurotransmitters. A quick message before you get to the show. We have some exciting news. Starting in June of 2024, the Neurotransmitters is going to start doing some live case-based discussions. So if you or someone you know is interested in either presenting a case or being part of the discussion group, send us an email at contact at the neurotransmitters.com. Also in the show notes, with the subject line, case-based discussion. Looking forward to hearing from you soon. Hello and welcome back to the Neurotransmitters. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Kentris, and I'm joined today for a very special treat with Dr. Andreas Haridimu, a neurologist and researcher at Boston University Medical Center and Boston Veterans Center. Andreas, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited to, uh, to pick your brain about a number of topics. Thank you so much, Michael, for the um, for the invitation. I'm also very excited talking with you this morning about uh, small vessel disease, CA, and whatever else. Yes. Now, for for those who aren't familiar, you know, we've known each other for a while on X, formerly known as Twitter, and had the chance to meet in real life, as the uh, the older millennials say, um, at the academy meeting this last year. But uh, this is our first time to have a kind of a longer conversation about what I consider like you're the guy for like cerebral amyloid angiopathy and do a lot of teaching online about uh, different types of ischemic disease to the brain. So if you could just kind of, for those who might be less familiar, um, when we're talking about small vessel ischemic disease and how that relates to kind of the development of brain pathology, if you had to give just the 50,000 foot view, how would you characterize it? Yeah. 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 That's a good question, actually. Um, so I think we're all familiar with the large vessel disease, ischemic strokes, for example, uh, cortical, infarcts, these kind of things. Uh, however, there are small vessels in the brain and they're affected by different pathologies. And the definition of how small a small vessel needs to be in order to be considered a small vessel, it, it kind of is a moving target. But in general, we're talking about arterioles and, uh, and, and smaller, so 500 microns and smaller. And these small vessels, they're affected by uh, some pathologies were particularly prevalent. Uh, the first one is kind of um, vascular risk factors driven, diabetes, hypertension, the same way they can cause atherosclerosis in smaller vessels that they call arteriosclerosis or lipohyalinosis. So it's kind of a vascular risk factor driven pathology. And the other pathology is uh, what is called cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which is entirely different in a way because its characteristics is amyloid beta deposition in uh, these small vessels, especially in the cortex and the leptomeninges. So when we say small vessel disease, we kind of mean at the basic level, these two pathologies. However, with all the advances on imaging, the term small vessel disease now applies to also imaging manifestations, microbleeds, white matter hyperintensities, or it might apply to clinical syndromes, for example, uh, lacunar infarcts. Um, so yeah, the, the disease can be approached at three different intersecting levels, which kind of reflect how the knowledge and, uh, and technology progressed from pathology to imaging and then integration. Excellent. Thank you. And you know, as we were talking about just before we, we started recording, you know, my my knowledge, thanks to you and other kind of vascular neurologists in the last few years, has uh, really put uh, cerebral amyloid kind of on the map for me. Um, but before we get to that, you know, 
I know a lot of times in a lot of parts of the country, we have you know primary care physicians um, who maybe don't have neurologists immediately available. Maybe they've gotten an MRI of the brain and you know it shows some some bright spots or these T2 hyperintensities on the images. And you know, you get this report back from the radiologist, and it's like could be seen with migraines, stroke, demyelinating disease. Um, so for those who aren't as familiar, uh, how would you go about kind of differentiating these? You know, let's say that they, they're they a particularly ambitious uh, person and they open up the actual films themselves and they're looking at like kind of the T2 flare. What are the characteristics that help us differentiate sort of small vessel disease from, say, like the typical uh, migraine hyperintensities mm. or kind of the, the UBOs or unidentified bright objects that we yeah. sometimes talk about? Yeah, that's, that's a very pertinent question. And it often... This scenario often leads to many downstream extra tests, which might be harmful for the patient. Absolutely. I would say the first piece of information, even before opening the actual MRI, is the clinical context. It's different if you see these spots on a 20-year-old female patient versus a 75-year-old patient with hypertension. So the the clinical context is very helpful in terms of the pre-test probability. For example, white matter spots in a 75-year-old, the probability of that being a demyelinating disease is very low, uh, just based on that. So there are a few things that you can use in addition to the clinical context. I think the first one is the pattern. Uh, Typically, small vessel disease-associated bright spots on, uh, on flare, they're often preventricular. They're just around the ventricles which uh, basically uh, the reason is that those are very vulnerable regions in terms of perfusion. Uh, Or in addition to that, they might have some small subcortical spots, which are kind of of widespread uh, in the brain. But you don't really see the spots, the subcortical spots in isolation. Uh, That's one thing. Uh, The second thing is uh, basically if you see white matter spots in areas you wouldn't typically expect. For example, corpus callosum. Typically in small vessel disease, you don't get, uh, at least in initial stages, white matter lesions there. If you see a predominant um, pattern affecting the temporal lobe, for example, or around the basal ganglia, should make you think of catacyl. So there are all sorts of information um, regarding the pattern of this and how they look on the MRI. The other thing uh, I would add is how extensive they are. Uh, For example, many uh, inflammatory or autoimmune conditions of the brain, they can cause edema and white matter spots. There are other ways to differentiate them, but to the eyes of a a general practitioner, they they would look the same. Um, So the extent, the symmetry, uh, and when it comes to small vessel disease, sporadic small vessel disease, the extent is often hard to judge because we don't have any normative data. Uh, when is white matter hyperintensity too much for any given age? We don't have any normative uh, uh, data from healthy controls to compare. Uh, so, yeah, the combination of uh, clinical context makes you think... Uh, demyelinating diseases or just uh, associations with migraine that we typically see in these patients if they get a brain MRIs, uh, their pattern, their extent. And then you can also use other brain MRI sequences 
to characterize what travels along those um, white matter uh, damage. Uh, for example, is it an area of gliosis, actually, because the patient had an infarct? Is it a tumor with edema? Uh, so all, all of these, they come into play. That's why usually the radiologists, they give a huge list of differential. Right. This imaging manifestation does have a huge list of differential, but taking into account the clinical context, the pattern and other sequences, you can nail down to maybe two or three differentials, which is already a great start. Excellent. No, that's super helpful. So kind of going from uh, this small vessel ischemic disease, and we touched on it just briefly earlier, related to cerebral amyloid, uh, which is, again, I consider you to be the the person who's probably taught me the most about uh, CAA uh, in my in my short career, but uh, we talked about the the deposition and a lot of times. Tell me if this is wrong. How I characterize it when I'm talking to patients is it's almost like Alzheimer's of the blood vessels in the brain. Um, is that too simplistic? Am I am I being too simple? Uh, How would you? <laughs> say no actually because i use the same uh, the same kind of uh, analogy when i explain this to patients uh, that is the alzheimer's equivalent of the vessel the, the only problem when using this equivalent is that the, the term alzheimer's has a huge emotional uh, uh, load true true that's yeah. a good point yeah but both conditions are they're, they're like cousins in a way because they're both characterized by amyloid deposition of different forms, one in the vessel, one uh, in the parenchyma. Uh, but it is a good, it's a good analogy to start. And so, so how would you, like if you have someone, so first of all, um, when should we start thinking about CAA as a potential diagnosis? Like what are the kind of clinical events that kind of bring it to the forefront of mind? Yeah. So first of all, CA is a is a very common uh, pathology as we're growing older. If we're lucky enough to live in our 80s or 90s, I mean, most of us will have some degree of CA. And in most patients, in most people, probably doesn't cause any problem because it's very mild. Now, when patients come uh, to the hospital, the clinical syndrome associated with CA, I think of them as stroke syndromes, and uh, kind of memory clinic or cognitive syndromes. Among the stroke syndromes, the first one that was really characterized and is very well known is presentations with lobar intracerebral hemorrhages, um, which in, in many elderly patients is due to CAA, plus or minus other uh, exacer- exacerbating risk factors, blood pressure elevations and this, this sort of stuff. The second stroke syndrome is with acute convexal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So you have an isolated subarachnoid hemorrhage in one of the uh, uh, cerebral convexities in one of the one or two of the sulci in the brain. And often these patients present with what is used to be called amyloid spells or transient focal neurological episodes that we can discuss later if you want what are their characteristics and how you should think about them. Yeah. Uh, so in my mind, acute convexal subarachnoid hemorrhage and amyloid spells are kind of linked. The one is the imaging, the acute imaging manifestation. The other is a clinical syndrome. Uh, then in, the, in terms of uh, memory clearing presentations, CA can either present as uh, like a pure 
vascular cognitive impairment kind of syndrome in patients that are uh, very severely affected. But most often it presents as a co-pathology in patients with uh, presumed Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia. So you see stigmata of the disease on the brain MRI. And in those patients that is a co-pathology, it's hard to characterize the contribution to specific cognitive domains. Uh, in those that it's the primarily driving pathology, the cognitive syndrome is exactly that of the vascular type of cognitive impairment, frontal executive, visuospatial would be like early affected. And then we have presentations, again, acute, uh, which do not fit with either. They fit with acute neurology. And this is the C-related inflammation, which is basically, it has a huge range, but at its core is a syndrome of uh, encephalitis uh, type of presentation with a lot of confusion, seizures, uh, cognitive impairment, and it can be either very acute or it can be subtle and subacute. Within this context, I consider ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, as one emerging clinical scenario where CA might be relevant. It's the basically ARIA is iatrogenic CA-related inflammation. Uh, it's in an oversimplification. This is what it is. Right. And I know with the uh, kind of the advent of all of these anti-amyloid therapies that are coming to market, you know, for, for better or worse, you know, I know there's still a lot of uh, hotly yeah. contested questions about how they're implemented and so forth. Um, what role do you think uh, this like, like perhaps undiagnosed or kind of, um, you know, lurking in the background, this CAA aspect of Alzheimer's potentially, or this co-pathology of with Alzheimer's, is the driving force for why some patients develop ARIA and others do not? Yeah, th I think that's the million-dollar question. It's the core of the issue. <laughs> and as, as we were discussing before, uh, in the behavioral neurology world, CA was, I think, kind of, was kind of neglected or it didn't have like a primary role. But now it does have because it affects treatment decisions. We have limited pathological data. That is, that's the problem uh, with anti-amyloid treatment. But even with those limited data from three or four patients that actually died from ARIA, it seems like the primary pathology was uh, destruction of the vessels, which vessels were heavily affected by amyloid deposition. So it's some sort of uh, autoimmune, not autoimmune, sorry, inflammatory reaction triggered by the anti-amyloid antibody within the vessel wall, which has amyloid. So this makes me think that probably underlying CAA in the brains of this patient, it is a real risk factor uh, for developing ARIA. And this is kind of what all the trials and now the, the guidance that we have from FDA is trying to select by saying that uh, you shouldn't give any of these treatments in patients having four microbleeds or more. The underlying idea is that you're trying to exclude patients that, I mean, why do they have microbleeds? And I'm talking about lower microbleeds. Most likely it's because of CA. I don't believe hypertensive arteriopathy with deep microbleeds poses any significant risk for ARIA. So you're kind of trying to exclude patients who have very obvious and probably significant CA manifested as microbleeds. But this is not enough because that's only the tip of the iceberg. Right. 
And yeah, that's that's one of the you know I think back to you know uh, the Boston 2.0 criteria of which you're one of the authors, and um, you know I know it's kind of broken down into like the definitive, probable, possible, uh, so forth. But I mean, you know, the definitive camp right requires biopsy, right? You have to have tissue, yeah. which I, I imagine most people aren't lining up to have done. Yeah, I agree. So. Um, uh, in terms of like the the probable camp, how how sensitive are these criteria in someone who maybe hasn't had a clinical? Event, yeah. they're coming into the let's say the cognitive yeah. clinic, and maybe they have like one or two low bar microhemorrhages. You know, they they don't really meet the the full criteria. Perhaps how how does the our current understanding of like making a diagnosis in a someone who maybe just has a cognitive subtype, and then kind of risk stratifying them, or is that something that's kind of still in flux? Oh, it's very much in flux, but th- this gives a good opportunity to to discuss about the structure of the criteria, of the Boston criteria. And for important historical context, these criteria were drafted in the mid-90s as an effort to diagnose, to diagnose CA-related hemorrhage. They were never designed initially to capture CA pathology. They wanted to assign the probability of a lobar hemorrhage being due to CAA. Uh, So that's one thing. So they're very heavily drifted towards hemorrhagic presentations uh, with microbleeds and hemorrhages being the core of defining the categories in previous versions. Now the structure, as you alluded to, the definite requiring pathology, probable and possible, it kind of reflects how all the criteria in the field of uh, cognitive neurology was uh, defined in the same time, like you have uh, definite, probable, and possible for Lewy body dementia, for, for temporal dementia. So it, it was uh, like a familiar way for clinicians, maybe, to think about the criteria. I personally think that this is outdated, at least for CA, because definite, you almost never have pathology. You, you wouldn't get a biopsy in any of these patients. Mm-hmm. Possible categories is a very shaky category. The way I explain that is that it's a possible category for CAA and a possible category for non-CAA. I see it as like 50-50. <laughs> right. So the probable category is the one that we typically use. And what we have done in the criteria is that we have expanded that category to include not only uh, presentations with at least two hemorrhagic imaging markers, two microbleeds or siderosis microbleeds, but to be allowed to make the diagnosis when you have one of these hemorrhagic biomarkers plus one of the non-hemorrhagic biomarkers, white matter hyperintensity spots or perivascular spaces in the uh, cerebral white matter. In this way, we try to expand the catch, especially for non-hemorrhagic presentations. Now, how good are they in the setting of memory clinic? The answer is that we don't know. We don't we don't know how sensitive or how specific they are. We have some indirect data and some data that are under publication, uh, looking at uh, different uh, different cohorts within the memory clinic or the general population. And the overarching uh, conclusion is that the Boston criteria are not very good in diagnosing probable CA in the context of the memory clinic. Uh, they have low specificity and a bit higher, uh, sorry, low sensitivity and a bit higher specificity. So we're missing a lot of these patients. 
Uh, of note, I was, um, I don't remember which conference it was, but there was an abstract that they compare uh, in a memory clinic how many patients can be diagnosed with possible or probable CAA based on the old criteria and based on the new ones. And if I remember correctly, that based on the old criteria, they could make the diagnosis in around 15 or 20% of the patients. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the new criteria, they can diagnose possible or probable CA in up to 45% of the patients. Oh, that's quite high. Yeah, we, but it's more in line with what we know from pathological studies, that in a memory clinic setting, up to 40% of patients might have mild or moderate CA. So t- to wrap it up, it, is that uh, just by saying it, it's, a, it's an active field of research mm-hmm. and we don't really know uh, how good the Boston criteria are in this setting. Probably they're not as good as in a patient presenting with uh, uh, lower hemorrhages or uh, convexal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I believe we need other markers and probably a somewhat different set of criteria. When we're publishing the paper, um, the focus and the material we had was primarily from hemorrhagic presentations rather than memory clinics. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, to what you said earlier, right? These are obviously the the small vessels that that aren't imaged well on most of our conventional studies. Are there any either like biomarkers or imaging markers that are currently like being investigated that you think have promise? Yeah, uh, in terms of um, non MRI markers, the two avenues of research that I have to say they have been stagnant for a long time is amyloid PET and CSF biomarkers. Amyloid PET is a bit tricky because uh, the amyloid radio tracers, they label both parenchymal and vascular amyloid. So a positive amyloid PET scan in the setting of a memory clinic, who knows? It's it's going to be parenchymal plaques, uh, plus or minus uh, uh, CAA. So you cannot really use it. There was the idea that maybe posterior predominance of uh, amyloid PET binding might be more specific for CA, uh, given that we know from pathology that CA affects more posterior cortical regions, but the effect size of that association is very small, and I'm not sure you can reliably detect that by uh, by naked eye on an amyloid PET. Hmm. I wonder, and maybe you know more about this, I, you know, my, thinking back to my, my own training in, in epilepsy, um, do they ever do like amyloid PET co-registration to MRI to seeing like if it if it superimposes on areas with like really confluent uh, white matter disease or anything like that? Does that have any correlation? I imagine someone has to have had to look into that in the past. Yeah, they have looked at that uh, in relation to lower microblitz, uh, and it was found that there is a shell of amyloid PET binding around microblitz of higher uptake. Uh, for white matter damage, I'm not. I don't think so. I don't think it was tested. Okay, uh, but but it's a good idea. The core registration. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. And as far as like the the CSF biomarkers, does that kind of fall into that uh, that neurofilament light chain family of investigation? Yeah, so, or something unique. Exactly. So we need something unique, and CSF biomarkers they offer the possibility of something unique. So, of course, you can measure uh, T-tau and P-tau and uh, all of those uh, neurodegenerative biomarkers. Mm-hmm. But what might tease apart CA from other 
pathologies is the amyloid beta species. So you can measure the CSF and characterize what are the how high or low are the amyloid beta species. And in CA, amyloid beta 40 is a species that pr- presumably gets deposited in the vessel wall ah. more than amyloid beta 42, which is the predominant amyloid beta species in amyloid plaques. So on CSF, low levels of amyloid beta 40 and other amyloid beta species with more with less than 40 amino acids so amyloid beta 38 they seem to have a great promise and a great uh, discriminatory value in teasing apart ca versus alzheimer disease interesting yeah and yeah serum biomarkers is the, i mean the, yeah. the alzheimer disease field is kind of moving into the serum biomarkers right Yeah, because it kind of goes back into that that thing where if we look at like the incidence of of Alzheimer's and by association the suspected coincidence of of things like CAA, you know how many of these people one just in terms of like uh, societal cost, you know, getting lumbar punctures, uh, the invasiveness of the tests. A lot of these people are probably on antithrombotic therapies, maybe even anticoagulation. What's the risk of holding these for invasive procedure? And it becomes this kind of mounting uh, logistical barrier to getting to a definitive diagnosis in people, you know, a, a vast majority of people. Yeah, I don't think you need to get a definite diagnosis in the overwhelming majority of people because the, the idea of diagnosis is only changing man- when it's going to change management, right? Sometimes, good point. You don't need to know all the definite co-pathologies in any given patient if. It's not going to change the management, or it, if it doesn't have any huge clinical relevance, CA is becoming very relevant because an accurate diagnosis in the memory clinic or in Alzheimer's disease, it might actually be the decision point for patients getting anti-amyloid uh, disease-modifying treatments or not. And those are not the overwhelming majority of patients. There was a study from the Mayo Clinic uh, 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 memory service. And uh, they analyzed all their patients, and they found out that about five to ten percent would be eligible using current uh, eligibility criteria to get uh, anti-amyloid treatments. So, in, in that fraction of patients, if we want to make anti-amyloid treatments safer, we need to improve our accuracy in diagnosing CAA. So, maybe in those patients, a lumbar puncture right. might make sense, and the risks and, and benefits. And you probably know the numbers better than I do, but if I remember right, it's around twenty-ish percent have of people who are qualified candidates for this have the risk for aria. Is that correct? So uh, asymptomatic aria, just based on imaging, yeah. uh, is about right between fifteen and twenty percent, and then symptomatic aria is much lower in the range of uh, maybe three to five percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the asymptomatic aria, the, the one you know, the little asterisk is that we don't really know what are the long-term consequences because having more microbleeds in the brain or more areas of uh, white matter damage uh, I mean it's not a good thing intuitively <laughs> right and i know uh, i've seen some uh, cognitive neurologists out there talking about like like at the end of these trials like total brain volume is diminished and you know all these other things you had mentioned and it's like we really don't have the longitudinal data to say what 
what does that mean uh, from a clinical perspective? And that's always a little uh, nerve wracking when we're talking about like the risks and the yeah. cost and all those sorts of things. It is. It is. Plus, we don't have uh, long term data to see if the curves, if the curves of benefit in uh, in those getting the treatment versus placebo, they continue to uh, diverge, or maybe after three four years they have the exact same path, uh, irrelevant of whether they got the drug or not. That, that's also a bit. Uh, um, is not satisfying. Right, right. I know there's, yeah, lots of uh, lots of debate, lots of hot takes out there online. <laughs> um, and I'm certainly uh, not not an expert in that uh, particular field, but it's it's always good to see that there is a robust discussion uh, from both sides. Yeah, I think there is uh, there is a robust discussion between. Uh, uh, people that they focus a lot on the benefit and people who focus a lot on the risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in any case, at least Lecanemab got FDA license, so you cannot take the clock back. But the debate is still relevant to make the treatment safer. Yeah. And, you know, just more of an opinion from you. Uh, If I remember right, I think the UK did not approve. Uh, I don't know if it was aducanumab or one of the other anti-amyloid therapies, but I know in, in Europe, there's been a lot more hesitancy towards the approval from the regulatory boards as far as these go. Um, yeah. Does that speak to anything, just maybe a difference in philosophy or maybe a more uh, stringent criteria in terms of showing benefit? It's pro- I'm not, I, I don't have inside information, so I, I don't know yeah. for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to hold you to it. (laughs) But I think it's a combination of those two things. Maybe they're a bit more strict compared to the the FDA and how they review uh, all of Mm -hmm. these new treatments. Plus, maybe there is indeed a different philosophy. In general, uh, I notice in the US, there is a tendency of uh, having a pill or a drug for everything to fix everything. (laughs) but uh, when it comes to dementia, it's, even in patients getting uh, anti-amyloid treatments, there's a lot more that goes into the dementia care and how, at the end of the day, the question is, is not how to remove the amyloid effectively, but the question for this patient is that how can they live a fruitful and a nice life despite having Alzheimer's? And maybe part of the story is removing the amyloid, but... There are a lot more elements into it. So I'm not sure. And I think European uh, boards are even more hesitant uh, based on what happened with uh, Aduganumab, which was a, mm-hmm. you know, it was a big failure, I believe, uh, in how yeah. the story evolved. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the, uh, the thing that a lot of people were hoping for, I don't believe. Yeah. Having said that, I truly believe that despite the failures, in general, in the Alzheimer's disease field, uh, it's positive that we're moving towards more treatments, which means that the private sector and all the companies, they have a renewed interest right. uh, in you know, investigating a bit more in this disease and uh, trying to find uh, beneficial medications. Uh, because when uh, adecanumab uh, turned out to be very risky compared to the benefit, many many people especially companies, they started closing their uh, neuroscience programs, looking at uh, dementia treatments. Right. So in general, I think it's a positive step, 
The question is how we can make it safer and beneficial at the end of the day. Right. No, I think that's that's absolutely true. So I know I've we've kind of uh, beaten the the dementia horse for a while, but um, you know I work a lot in the hospital, and something that that always comes up we have these these transient neurologic events or transient focal neurologic events, and I know the temptation for many of us, uh, and maybe even more so for non neurologists, is to call any transient neurologic event a TIA or a seizure, but it's probably accurate that there's something in between the two, perhaps. Um, and as we kind of hinted at earlier, uh, they used to be called amyloid spells. I'm my a lot of my instructors are a little old fashioned, and so we would call anything that we weren't definitive was a seizure. It would be a spell, um, which I know is not currently in vogue, but uh, I have a certain uh, historical fondness for it. But uh, could you tell me a little bit about amyloid spells? When should we consider them? How do we go about proving them to the best of our ability? Yeah, this is uh, when I came across patients with these symptoms. My my PhD supervisor at the time, uh, uh, David Waring at UCL, he used this term amyloid spells. I'm like, oh, this sounds fascinating. It's a spell. Is, Is it caused by amyloid? Why is it different to a TIA? So... Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting question. The first step is to know, as you said, that not all transient episodes, tra- transient symptoms in neurology are TIAs or focal seizures. They could be a number of things. Uh, uh, they could be a, like a microinora. They could be functional symptoms, or they could be amyloid spells or CA-related transient focal neurological episodes. Um, so. It's hard to make the diagnosis just clinically, the same way it's hard to make the diagnosis of a TIA just clinically uh, before you do brain imaging, I mean. Uh, But some of the uh, indicators that maybe you're dealing with something that is not a TIA is, um, first of all, positive symptoms. Typically, TIAs, they cause negative symptoms, so loss of function, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, upper extremity weakness or aphasia. Uh, The prototypical amyloid spell is a spell that involves migrating paresthesias from the arm up to the mouth, uh, which resolves in a typical uh, migratory migratory fashion as well. So this is one indicator. Although we now know that some, uh, some amyloid spells, they have negative symptoms. So if you have this migratory positive nature, it should make you suspicious, but if you don't have it, it doesn't mean it's not a it's not an amyloid spell. Now, the other thing which is very atypical for a TIA is to have recurrent stereotypical episodes of the exact same symptoms, exact same pattern. You don't get that with a TIA just because different areas are affected depending on what's the mechanism of the TIA. You might have that with a focal seizure, though. Uh, so. Again, none of these clinical indicators are very specific. Uh, The other indicator is when you have, let's say, transient neurological episodes in a patient without any vascular risk factors or in a patient that you have excluded any, uh, uh, you know, carotid stenosis and any other sort of uh, sources of emboli, let's put it this way. 
but this but it's not enough all of these are just indicators when present it should make you think more about amyloid spells when they're absent they don't mean uh, patients do not have them so the key after having amyloid spells in your differential is to get blood sensitive sequences on the brain mri because that's the only way you can diagnose ca and that's the only way you might find the underlying cause of these uh, amyloid spells which in the overwhelming majority is uh, acute subarachnoid hemorrhage in an area, in an eloquent area of the cortex, uh, depending on where the symptoms are. Or depending if the patient came immediately to the hospital or after a few days, you might only see cortical superficial sclerosis, which is um, like the chronic form of uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, I think there's... And of course, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was, about, I was about to say, with the brain MRI, of course, you have ruled out other causes of these symptoms. So so that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, because you know, I know sometimes you'll get the MRI back, and there'll be this tiny little punctate area of restricted diffusion as well, like very, very superficial on the cortex, uh, like literally just like one or two millimeters across. And maybe it correlates with the symptoms, maybe not. Um, in... What context, or I should say, how far are we looking for, you know, some sort of like embolic source of stroke versus attributed more to an amyloid etiology? Yeah. So are you referring to the scenario that the pa- you suspect the patient might be having uh, amyloid spells? You do the brain MRI, but you see no siderosis and no subarachnoid hemorrhage. Correct. In the area you expect, but instead you see a small punctate DWI lesion. Right. So in this scenario that you haven't found any sort of chronic or acute bleeding in an area that can explain the symptoms, and you have a DWI lesion, in this scenario, you need to look a bit hard mm-hmm. for uh, embolic sources, in- including, long. I mean, in addition to cardiac echo, long-term monitoring, and, you know, you go all the way towards that path of uh, uh, embolic stroke workup. However, if you have a patient that in addition to those tiny WI lesions, just above the cortex, they have uh, acute subarachnoid hemorrhage or cortical superficial sclerosis, I don't think you should look very far for embolic sources because we know that in these patients with CA and acute superficial bleeding, we often see small DWI lesions uh, in that area just below uh, where the uh, bleeding has happened. And I'm not sure what's the exact mechanism. Maybe it's cortical spreading depression uh, in patients that basically all their vessels, they lack autoregulation, so it's easier to get uh, small EWI lesions, yeah. or I don't know if there's any other mechanism. Because but... I, I, I recall uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I had this, this huge run uh, when I was covering the epilepsy service of... Um, we're doing all these long-term EEGs on these patients in the neuro ICU who were coming in with uh, subarach or not subarach mm. subdural hemorrhages, <clears throat> and you know, obviously, depending on the size of the bleed, that diminishes your sensitivity on your recording. But um, you would watch them for 24, 48 hours. You'd capture the spells. There wouldn't be any electrographic changes, and it it does make me wonder. Like, are we seeing the best I could find were some some theoretical papers at the time talking about that exact same thing, right? This, this spreading field of depression, which I feel is like this, this 
phrase that we as neurologists throw out for, for anything that we can't explain otherwise. Like inflammation. Right, and inflammation. Um, but uh, but yeah, it does seem like all these same mechanisms do apply, right? It's not necessarily vascular. It's not you know uh, electrical. It's kind of the combination of the two. And we, we see this with all of these disorders that are kind of transient migratory, you know, migraine, seizures, uh, other kinds of like uh, vascular events that aren't clearly TIAs or strokes. And it, um, it does make me wonder, like these all, these are all kind of happening on this spectrum. Um, is there any role for, for amyloid spells, like assuming that we've you know, ruled out TIAs and strokes to the best of our ability for, for any like anti-seizure medication or anything of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's also a very good question that comes up very often. Um, so the answer is that there is a role, uh, again, as in most areas of CA, we're in un- uncharted territory in terms of randomized control trials. There are zero randomized trials of, of what we're talking about. But the like the anecdotal clinical experience with these patients is that uh, the episodes, they tend to diminish on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason being is that the acute blood gets absorbed and, you know, gets degraded down the line. So it's not so irritating to the cortex. However, we have had patients that they have 10 or 20 of these episodes in a single day. Uh, So it's quite bothersome. If the patient thinks the episodes are bothersome, then prescribing a short course of anti-epileptic medication is, is not a bad idea, at least you're trying, mm-hmm. uh, but I wouldn't keep them more than like a, a month or two because I would assume the episodes should subside by then. Interesting. Uh, so there is a role, but not in all patients. And again, I'm not even sure if the anti-epileptics are working in this scenario or just time. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it makes the episodes go away. I know that's one of the things that we'll, we'll sometimes do is like basically like a an empiric you know, therapeutic slash diagnostic trial of meds. Like, I'm not sure what these spells are. Yeah. Try this for come back in a month. Tell me if they go away. Um, and especially in, in areas where you can't get folks into like an epilepsy unit or something like that for, for closer monitoring, you, you do kind of have to, uh, yeah. just try stuff sometimes, which can be challenging. It is, it is because most of these patients are elderly. So you wouldn't want to have them on an antiepileptic without any reason, but right. In some, in some of them, it's not unreasonable to try. Right, right. Yeah, especially, you know, there's some that are relatively low risk as long yeah. as they don't interact and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's important for whoever makes a diagnosis or to continue following these patients because, as you probably know better than I do, as soon as there is a patient on an anti-epileptic, if they go to their PCP or anywhere else, how likely is it to ever stop that anti-epileptic? Oh, never, never, ever. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Um, all I should say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, complain for a minute. One thing that drives me crazy is, uh, folks who are at nursing homes, they check, especially levetiracetam levels on these patients. And it's like, oh, your level's too high. I'm like, well, they've been on the same dose for like two years. They drop the level down, the dose down. They have a breakthrough seizure. They wind up in the hospital. I'm like, why'd they change your meds? Oh, okay. Um, so that's what I always tell all of my trainees, like, 
don't check Kepler levels unless you're worried the patient isn't taking yeah. it or they're in renal failure. <laughs> Otherwise, it's probably a waste of your time. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, why would you check levels and monitoring any patient that has been taking it without any problems? I think that's. I think it's just a reflexive thing. Um, you do see older physicians out there where you would check, you know, like valproate or phenytoin levels, right? Like that's appropriate, especially in someone who might be having yeah. altered metabolism as they age. But uh, they start to cross-apply that to some of the more modern medications, which don't really have the same indications. Yeah. But uh, but yes, that's my own particular uh, uh, soapbox that I have in my area. But I'm sure I'm not unique in yeah. that. Let me, since since I have you here, let me ask this question: If you have a patient, let's say on Kepra, yeah, he had a breakthrough seizure. You measured levels; they're therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to increase the dose to kind of boost the levels? further up or would you add another antiepileptic depending uh, on uh, based on you think the patient needs more coverage uh, there was no precipitating yeah. factor it's probably just uh, a matter of adding something yeah so so typically i i i would typically maximize monotherapy um before adding in a second agent personally assuming you know normal kidney yeah. function and um you know they're tolerating it okay, and if they are on a you know middling dose like seven fifty twice a day to a thousand twice a day, you know you got a little bit of room to go up. I typically, if I'm up to fifteen hundred twice a day, I some people will go to two thousand twice daily. Personally, I tend to find the side effect incidence mm-hmm. goes up, and I don't really get that much benefit in most people. Now, if you're seeing like when you went from a thousand to fifteen hundred you had a good reduction maybe you can make an argument that they're a good responder and they just need a little bit more but in my experience i would say those people are the exception rather than the rule yeah. um but a lot of times i i i like i'm a big fan of optimizing monotherapy just because of like med compliance um obviously when you get to as you know polypharmacy is a a big independent risk factor for medication non-adherence yeah. uh just due to the complexity of some of our regimens so I uh, I tend to to be a monotherapy advocate until you've kind of exhausted that, yeah. that line. And then it I think it does become one of those questions. Did the Kepra, as you were titrating it up, did it make any difference in terms of frequency or severity of the episodes? If not, then I tend to be someone who would cross titrate to an entirely different agent as opposed to adding on a second yeah. agent on top of it. So it really does depend on the clinical response to the initial monotherapy, uh, whether or not I would keep it on board as I kind of progress down that pathway. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for that. It, it makes a lot of sense, actually, and it's a common it's a common scenario. Right, right. These patients, we see them quite often in the emergency department with breakthrough seizures. Yeah, and that is right. That that is the knee jerk response is just to you know, oh, they're not maxed out. We'll just bump it up. But don't get me wrong, I do that yeah. very often myself. You know, it's like, but. As as you also know, right? The main reason why people do have breakthrough seizures is you know they maybe they missed a couple doses, and we don't really need to do yeah. anything uh, in those patients. More often, I'll have the conversation about uh, either changing it to an extended release form or to a medication that has a longer half life. Um, if if compliance is is a concern just because of missed doses on a repeated yeah. basis, so going to something long acting like zanisamide. Um, that would be an option, or eslecarbazepine. Uh, again, depending on interactions yeah. and all that jazz. But um, 
bit before I make this a seizure podcast episode, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's always um, to become. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, for yeah. for me it is, but <laughs> but um, as far as so, this is a, another situation, kind of going into that um, that complex, right? Because like you said, it's rare that we get any one of these pathologies by themselves. Um, when we have someone we're we're thinking, you know, they've got these micro hemorrhages in the lobar areas, but we also see on the MRI, maybe they have had like a lacunar stroke either acutely or in the past, and they've got some cardiovascular risk factors or cerebrovascular risk factors. What is the role of, of antithrombotic therapy or, you know, uh, God forbid anticoagulation in someone with atrial fibrillation? Uh, how do we navigate those waters? Yeah. Those are difficult waters to navigate, but we have some answers. <laughs> the The way I think about CAA is that you can have symptomatic CAA defined by the syndromes, primarily the hemorrhagic, but also in the setting of a memory clinic. And you might have CAA as an incidental finding just because you got a brain MRI. And we know, again, from neuropathological studies that CAA, again, depending on the age, is quite common. So having CA incidentally uh, uh, in a patient who got a brain MRI because he had an ischemic stroke is a very common scenario. And the way you, you might identify incidental, uh, incidental CA is by seeing, as you said, a couple of lower microblades. So before, partly because of the, of the literature and the way the field in small vessel disease and microblades focus so much on bleeding. Even the name, Micron Bleeds, is a scary name. It involves bleeding in the brain. It's not a good thing. We now know that a lot of Micron Bleeds, they're not even bleeding uh, events uh, in nature based on neuropathology. So it's a, range, it's, it's a range of underlying pathologies that cause what we see as Micron Bleeds on, on brain MRI. So in those patients that have incidentally found Micron Bleeds, without any lobar hemorrhage, without siderosis, without clinical uh, CA events, it's, it's probably very safe to prescribe antithrombotics for secondary stroke prevention. And I'm saying this because we have uh, good observational data uh, from the CROMIS study, from the HERO study in Spain, and then from a, a large meta-analysis involving more than 13,000 people uh, who were all patients with uh, ischemic stroke, with or without AFib, uh, who had a brain MRI at baseline, they assessed microbleeds, and then they assessed for future events. And they found that even in patients who had more than two lower microbleeds, a pattern suggestive of uh, CAA, uh, the risk of hemorrhage was always lower than the risk of ischemic stroke. So you need to look at the absolute number of events, not the relative numbers. Okay. So always in this particular scenario, the absolute number of events of ischemic stroke that are much higher than intracerebral hemorrhage. In other words, you get more benefit than harm by prescribing antithrombotics. And this is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, is that, that's typically for monotherapy, I assume? Yeah, mo most of, I mean, based on the data, most of those patients, they were monotherapy, either uh, Plavix or aspirin. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some on dual antiplatelets, uh, but very few. 
And really the indications for mm-hmm. uh, dual antiplatelets, I mean, they're not huge. They're very specific scenario that a patient needs to be <laughs> on DAPT and right, right. for specific time frame. Yeah, I don't know why. In the last few months, I've seen a run of a run of people who have been on dual antiplatelets for for very long, like like years um, after a small stroke or something like that. I'm just like, yeah, you must have gotten lost to follow up at some point. This, yeah, uh, I think that there was one of the stroke fellows at Boston Medical Center who who did a quality improvement study because we started noticing the same that. Patients after a minor stroke put on DAPT, uh, they continue for months. And that was the reason. Uh, lost that follow-up or continued follow-up with another provider. And yeah, they just <laughs> stayed on it. And is did you find, just my own curiosity, is it people who had kind of the, the lower NIH's minor strokes uh, who tended to be more lost to follow-up? Yeah, that makes that makes more that makes sense. sense. They're, yeah. they're not as fixated on their uh, post-stroke deficits, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, they were too good. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, that is what happens, right? No one wants to go to the doctor. Yeah. Um. Any any final thoughts? I, I feel like I've learned a lot today, and I very much appreciate it. Uh, anything else that you think you know the the medical community at large? Um, should be cognizant of as they're out there treating patients with, with neurologic disorders, transiently cognitive decline, et cetera, um, that you think would kind of improve the care in their community? Yeah. So I think if we are to close with like a, a couple of take-home message, is that to make a diagnosis of CA, when you have a, a, rele- a relevant scenario, you need blood-sensitive sequences. Otherwise, we're just talking theoretically and potentially harming the patient. And now we have very good blood-sensitive sequences, especially the SWI, susceptibility-weighted imaging. It's much better than uh, the T2-star GRE in making, in, in uh, visualizing siderosis, microbleeds. So these are better sequences to make a CA diagnosis. So you need that. If you assess a TI patient and you get a brain MRI without blood-sensitive sequences, then you're missing the opportunity to make an alternative diagnosis. So for those of us who only have uh, GRE at our institution, <laughs> uh, how many do you think we're missing a lot of patients? Let me put it that way. I'm not sure how many are missed. Um, I would assume there are not many. It's just with SWI versus GRE, mm. you can see more. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now, if at your institution you have an 1.5 Tesla GRE, then if you compare it with a 3 Tesla SWI, there maybe you're missing. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe 10, 15 yeah. percent. I'm not sure. Okay. I, we don't have the data. I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one's running that study. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We have the data from patients who were already diagnosed with uh, CA or they had microbleeds on GRE. When you look at the SWIs, you just see those same microbleeds better and you see more. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. And in, in a few patients, you see microbleeds or siderosis that you didn't see in your GRE. Or if you go back to the GRE, an area that look a bit blurry was actually siderosis or a microbleed. So yeah, I think SWI is, uh, should be the, the standard of care um, going forth. And the second, the second take-home message is that we shouldn't be so afraid of microbleeds. 
in the sense that not all micron bleeds are due to CA, not all micron bleeds are microhemorrhages, and uh, outside the clinical syndromes of CA, micron bleeds should not hold off from prescribing uh, antithrombotics in a patient with a, a real indication, especially when it comes to uh, secondary stroke prevention or prevention of MIs. Uh, because I think the tendency is to be over-conservative and not prescribing these medications just because there were a bunch of microbleeds incidentally on a brain MRI. That makes sense. And obviously that the emphasis being on the micro part of the microbleeds, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, just to clarify, the microbleeds, they're not small version of lobar hemorrhages. Right. It's, it's an imaging construct in a way. Mm -hmm. And they appear black and scary on SWI and the T2 star sequences. Their real size is likely 10 to 30 times smaller in the brain than what they appear to be on the MRI. They just, there is a susceptibility artifact, as it's called. So the, mm -hmm. the distortion of the magnetic field is... Uh, is much higher than the actual size uh, right. of the lesion. Just to give you like a concrete example, you might have a microbleed, and when you look at the pathology, there are three macrophages with hemosiderin. That's it. Oh, wow. That does put it in context. Yeah. Well, Andreas, thank you so much. If people want to find you online, where should they track you down? So I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, uh, at a... Um, uh, Haridimu, my surname, so they can find me. And um, they can also email me. I can share my email if you like. Sure, go for it. Uh, my email is uh, Andreas with a D dot Haridimu, my surname, uh, dot um, zero nine at UCL dot AC dot UK. Um, or, you know, you can send me a message on Twitter. It's easier. Sure. I'll include a link to your, your Twitter bio on the uh, show notes today as well. Yeah. And thank you again. Uh, I think this was very educational, uh, a lot of good information. I very much appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me, talk with our listeners. Um, and thank you. Really appreciate it. The pleasure was all mine. I mean, uh, it was very nice to get to spend some time with you after all this time that we, we have been interacting. And I definitely learned a lot from your questions and I learned a bit on epilepsy as well. So bonus. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind, too kind. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. This episode was edited and produced by Rita Farhan. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review for us on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you might get your podcasts. This really helps with getting the show noticed and spreading the word. You can find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Dr. Kentris, D-R-K-E-N-T-R-I-S. And you can find the official neurotransmitters feed at neuro underscore podcast. Lastly, you can find a lot of our content online and keep in touch with us through our website at theneurotransmitters.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.